Uh, well, good morning. Um, uh, I thought Aidy tried it, so I'll try it again, but <laughs> even less response for me. So, good morning. Thank you. Uh, this time next week, uh, the schools will have broken up. Uh, most people will be off work uh, because of the bank holidays, uh, and even by uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, an insane amount of chocolate will have already been eaten. And although uh, people will associate all of that with Easter, very few people nowadays, I think, actually know why we celebrate Easter in the first place. I think it's a bit like what's happened to the 5th of November. You see, the whole point of the 5th of November isn't the fireworks and the bonfires. It's a celebration of the failure of the gunpowder plot on the 5th of November, 1605. It's a celebration of a very, very specific event, the foiling of the plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament. But over time, I think that bit has very much been forgotten. And so you can go to the bonfires and see all the fireworks and do the sparkler thing and never even think about what it is actually commemorating. And I'd suggest the same thing over the years has happened to Easter. As time's gone by, it's become all about chocolate eggs and bonnets and rabbits and holidays and that kind of stuff. Now, don't hear me wrong, not against any of that stuff, other than bonnets, not particularly keen on them, but let's, let's not go there. Not against most of that stuff, but I'm not convinced Jesus actually had any of that in mind at the time. The whole point of Easter is we get to celebrate a very, very specific event, without which there wouldn't be an Easter, let alone Christianity. Now, the event, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. The church got its launch not because Jesus said such incredible things as a teacher. And it didn't get its start because Jesus went around performing such phenomenal miracles. The church didn't begin even because Jesus was such a good man. I don't think we know any of that these days had there not been this one event which we refer to as the resurrection. And so today, I just want to simply read you the story, because it's amazing how quickly we forget it or just take it for granted. It's a phenomenal story. It's so incredibly, breathtakingly powerful. In fact, it's such a powerful story that many, many, many people over the years have come to follow Jesus simply as they've looked into this story for themselves. Now, for me, one of the things that makes it altogether more powerful and more believable is the lack of any real heroes in the story. In fact, what we're going to find as we look at the account of what happened is that none of Jesus' followers expected the resurrection. Not one of them. Well, when Jesus died, they all gave up, packed their bags, and pretty much went home. I mean, just think about it for a moment. It would have been a much better story, wouldn't it, if when Jesus died, they put his body in the tomb, and all of his faithful followers had gathered outside the tomb, 
waiting for the resurrection to happen. It would have been so much more impressive, wouldn't it, if these men and women had such incredible faith because they remember that Jesus had promised he would rise from the dead and they believed everything he had told them. And so all night long they knelt by the tombside praying and praying and praying until God heard their prayer. And then there was a rumbling sound and they began to count down 10, 9, 8, 7. And the, the Roman soldiers, they fled for their lives. Six, five, four, and the seal around the tomb began to break. Three, two, one, boom! And Jesus strides out of the tomb amidst rapturous applause and high fives and whoops and the rest. And you'd read that and think, oh my gosh, what a story. But there's nothing like that. Everybody just packs up and goes home. Nobody expected the resurrection. There are no heroes. There are no men and women of extraordinary faith. They pretty much responded to Jesus' death just as anybody would respond to someone dying in front of their very eyes. Once he died, they assumed he would stay dead. Even though they'd seen the miracles, even though they'd heard the teaching, as far as they were concerned, once he died, there would be no Christianity. He was just another wannabe Messiah. Admittedly, He was a slightly better speaker than anyone they'd ever heard in their lives. They didn't have a clue how he pulled off all of those remarkable miracles, but they saw him die. Game over. The end. That's how the story's written. The gospel writers didn't make Peter or James or John, any other disciples, into some kind of superheroes. They're portrayed as a bunch of people who had lost hope and lost faith, just like probably we would have done if we were in their shoes. For me, It's one of the things that makes the story so amazing and so incredibly compelling. All that being said, let's actually read the story. Let's read Luke's account of what happened. And uh, there are no kind of three pithy points this morning. We're just going to walk through the story, pausing every now and again. I'll highlight a few things to you, uh, and then in half an hour or so, we'll be done. Okay, let's pick it up in chapter 23, verse 50. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, uh, not to be confused with Joseph in the Old Testament or even Mary and Joseph, Joseph. No, it's a different Joseph. Uh, he was a member of the Jewish High Council, but he hadn't agreed with the decision and actions of the other religious leaders. In other words, he was against the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. He was sympathetic with Jesus' cause. He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then he took the body down from the cross, wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth, and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. Just pause there. I want to try and imagine the scene. I want to try and picture the scene. This tomb, I've got a picture that you might just about make out on the screen there. Uh, The tomb was cut in the rock, a bit like a cave. There would have been this huge stone that sat in a bit of a kind of trough, a little higher than the opening. And once the body was safely inside, they'd remove this wedge that was holding the stone in place. and It would roll down into place across the entrance of the tomb. And then they would seal the tomb just in case someone tried to steal the body. And according to the other gospel writers, in this particular instance, Roman soldiers were also stationed outside to make it doubly secure. Got the picture? 
verse 54. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. As Jesus' body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. Now why do you think they did that? It's because they thought Jesus was dead and they assumed he was going to stay dead. And so, as was the custom, they prepared spices to place on his dead body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun. And so they rested as required by the law. And so Friday night, they're staying up as late as they can, getting all of this stuff prepared. The Sabbath comes along, and they're not permitted to work on the Sabbath, and so they wait that entire day and that entire night, anxious to get up as early as they can the next morning to rush to the tomb and give Jesus a proper burial. Chapter 24, verse 1. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, and so they went in. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus, which was what they were looking for, because everybody expected his dead body to stay in the tomb, because that's what dead bodies tend to do. They stay where they've been placed. Verse 4, as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? Answer, because they thought he was dead. In fact, didn't just think he was dead, they stood there and watched him die. He was dead and they watched his dead body get laid right there in this tomb. That's why they were there. We're just kind of assuming that because he would died, he would remain dead. Verse 6, these two men, or angels, continue. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. You see, Jesus had predicted his death and his resurrection. But as you read the gospel, something really interesting you find, I think we, we, we can all do this. Whenever Jesus explains to his followers that bad things are going to happen to him, they just kind of cover their ears and say, no, we're not listening, we're, we're, we're not receiving that, we don't think that's going to happen. It's like they didn't want to hear it, like they filtered it all out. On several occasions, Jesus had talked about his suffering, but his followers had refused to listen. In fact, right before he was arrested, Jesus explained overtly about what was going to happen. Peter's response, don't be stupid, Jesus. Nothing's going to happen to you, no one's going to hurt you. And of course, that's what they believed. I mean, imagine you were them. Okay, Jesus, let's just review this. You have the ability to see into the future. You know everything. You see what's going on in people's minds. How is anyone going to successfully sneak up on you? And we've seen you calm whole storms with your voice. You can just command your attackers to leave you alone, and they will. I mean, come on, you're the Messiah. 
We've waited centuries for you to show up. You're not going anywhere. Nothing's going to happen to you. And so they just never heard what Jesus said to them, even though he predicted it on a number of occasions. Verse 8, then, after the angels had explained all of this, they remembered that Jesus had said this. And so they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. Now again, if you were making all of this stuff up, you'd kind of want to make the 11 disciples, the apostles as they're going to be, you'd want to make them appear a little impressive, wouldn't you? I mean, these 11 apostles, they were going to be the stallions of the church movement. And so when these women come rushing back and say, he's risen, he's risen, what do you reckon their response is going to be? Verse 11, but the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. Do you know why? Because they weren't expecting the resurrection. It wasn't even in their thinking. It wasn't even an option to them. Dead people don't come back to life again. Get in the picture. There are no heroes here. There are no men of great faith on show. There are no great saints ready to take on the world with the message of Jesus. Verse 12, however, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to take a look for himself. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. I mean, even looking at the empty tomb, even seeing the strips of linen lying there, it made no sense to him. He couldn't work it out. He wondered to himself what had happened. And over time, as he wondered, he began to think, what if, what if Jesus had actually been raised back to life. If that happened, it would change absolutely everything. Because if he rose from the dead, then it surely means everything Jesus said about himself is true. And if he rose from the dead, then everything he said about the purpose, the reason for his death That's true as well. And if he rose from the dead, then when he said his death would deal with my sins, that must be what happened. And if he rose from the dead, then when he said he'd never leave us, that he would be with us always, then he must be right here with us now. And if he rose from the dead, then surely he must be the unique Son of God, just as he claimed he was. If this happened... If it did, surely this changes everything. If the resurrection did happen, then it pushes you beyond simply believing some stuff. He's a living reality. He's with us right now. You can seek him and find him. You can actually know him personally for yourself, not just know a whole lot of stuff about him. And we know from what happened several weeks later, having encountered Jesus for himself, that Peter's conclusion in the end was that the body wasn't stolen, they hadn't mistakenly gone to the wrong tomb, 
This wasn't some kind of aberration. No, Jesus had, in fact, risen. He was now very much alive. In fact, Peter was so convinced that Jesus had come back to life that just a few weeks on from this, on the day of Pentecost, right there in Jerusalem, with thousands of people crowding round, this same Peter, who had no expectation of the resurrection, who didn't assume anything based on what the women said, who even walked away from the empty tomb, wondering what on earth was going on. This same Peter stood up in front of all the crowds, and this is what he said. This was his final conclusion. Have a listen to this. It's from Acts chapter 2. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. He's saying, you want to know what I concluded eventually, after I'd looked into that empty tomb. Here I am, just a few weeks later, I'm telling you, I'm absolutely convinced. Uh, In fact, I'm staking my whole life on this, knowing that you may crucify me as you crucified him, but I don't care. I'm going public with this knowledge. You see, knowing, being convinced that Jesus is alive changes everything. I mean, if you believe this, if you really believe this, you cannot keep it to yourself. You've got to let it out. You've got to tell others, even if you're frightened of what other people will think of you, which was very much the case for Peter just after Jesus was arrested. Remember, he denied even knowing Jesus. But if you know that Jesus didn't stay dead, but was raised from the dead, this is the most important news in the whole world. Was 2,000 years ago, I'd humbly suggest it remains the same today. You know, we can be so familiar with this message that we just take it for granted. We mustn't. It's the basis for everything we believe. It's the proof that Jesus really did pay the penalty for our sin. It's the conclusive evidence for all the truths, all the claims of the gospel. It's the basis of our hope that when we die one day, we'll be raised, resurrected like Jesus and spend eternity with him. It's the reason why we've got to get the message out to others. And so Peter standing in front of all these people right there in the center of Jerusalem, declares, I am absolutely confident, absolutely convinced that this Jesus whom you crucified has come back to life. He's risen from the dead. Verse 32, God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses of this. This is important. He's saying, we don't simply believe it because we believe it. Now, we believe it because we saw it. 
It isn't just a philosophy we subscribe to because we've been convinced or coerced or duped over time into believing something. No, we are telling you what we saw with our very own eyes. We're all witnesses of the fact that God has raised Jesus to life. Verse 36, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Now again, I don't want you missing the significance of this. You see, back then in that culture, what Peter just said was either absolutely true or it was absolute blasphemy and he should have been strung up and put to death there and then. This is so blatant, so in your face, that Peter is either crazy and has a death wish, or he's absolutely convinced of the truth of it. I don't know. Perhaps when he uttered those words, a hush fell over the crowd. Because there's now a decision that needs to be made. crowd of thinking, do we crucify him like we crucified his leader? Or do we simply laugh and walk away? Remember, this was a group of people who could have walked from that spot to the very tomb where Jesus was buried. They could have seen for themselves whether or not it was empty. And they could have paid a visit to Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and James. These were real people. They could very easily track down and interrogate. This wasn't years later. This wasn't even months later. This was weeks later. So how would they respond? Verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. and They said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? It's like, no matter how much they wanted to resist it, no matter how in your face and threatening the message was to them, no matter how paradigm shifting it was for them, they knew that what Peter said was true, that they'd been wrong about Jesus, that they'd been guilty themselves of handing him over to be crucified. It's like they shared responsibility for his death. And in that moment, they were cut to the heart. They say to Peter, what should we do? And Peter replied to them, and I guess to you and me as well, to all of us who are willing to admit, I think I've been wrong. I've been misled all this time. Maybe I didn't read the accounts. I didn't read the story closely enough. Maybe no one ever explained it like this to me before. Either way, I just didn't have all the facts. Or I was running from it. It's like I was afraid to acknowledge it and admit it. I was afraid of the consequences of believing this for my life, the implications for my my life. Kind of known in my mind all along that My parents, my friends, possibly they were right about this. But life sort of took me in a different direction. Whatever it is, whatever the reason, here's Peter's response. Verse 38, Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Now listen to this. 
this is what's so amazing to me. Peter had every right in the world to be angry at this crowd. I mean, they'd murdered his friend, for goodness sake. But Peter knew in his heart of hearts that he shared responsibility as well. Because in a moment when he perhaps could have done something about it, soon after Jesus had been arrested, remember, he said, I never even knew him at all. So Peter says, here's what you have to do. Effectively, you need to do what I did. First of all, you have to repent, which means you have to turn from living your way and admit that you were wrong. Listen, you might feel like you were disqualified from knowing Jesus because you could never be good enough. Maybe secretly you carry a huge weight of guilt or shame over stuff that you have done in the past. But the whole point of Jesus' death was to take the punishment for all of that so you wouldn't have to. And the fact that maybe you feel like you fall short of the mark simply reveals your need for Jesus. So you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. You need to turn from your past. You need to turn from living for yourself and receive Jesus' free gift of forgiveness. First, you need to repent. Secondly, you need to be baptized. In other words, you need to go public with your decision. You need to let other people know that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he's my Savior. I believe he's the Savior of the world. You see, in being baptized, you're making public your identification with Jesus' death and resurrection. You're demonstrating that you yourself have died to your old way of living. You've been raised again or born again to a life of living for Jesus. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. Then thirdly, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know, some people put off becoming a Christian because they feel they could never ever live it out. The truth is, none of us can. We're all weak in certain areas. We all lack the power to overcome certain temptations. We're all pretty nervous when it comes to courageously sharing our faith with others. Which is why Jesus promised to fill us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is none other than God's empowering presence, not only with us, but in us. It's amazing. God offers to provide us with all the power we need to live a life as a follower of Jesus. So what do we need to do? Well, Peter says each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. All have been called by the Lord our God. Verse 40, and Peter continued preaching for a long time. As a church, we're true to Scripture. We follow its every instruction. For this is a great model for us today. Peter continued preaching for a long time. Precedent here. Strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Then get this, verse 41, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, 
about 3,000 in all. About 3,000 people who could have walked to the tomb and looked into it. Who could have interviewed Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Who could have pinned Peter down and asked him what really happened. 3,000 people who had the potential to have actually been eyewitnesses of the crucifixion of Jesus in the first place. 3,000 people in that moment declared, we believe Jesus is the Christ, sent by God to be the saviour of the world. We believe his death paid for sin, even our sin. And they were baptised there and then. That is how the church began. And in the weeks that followed, you, you read the rest of the book of Acts, thousands more begin to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, right there in the vicinity of where all of these events occurred. And the message began to leave Jerusalem, and it spread to Rome and across all of what we'd call modern-day Europe. So here we are today, in Birmingham, celebrating an actual historical event that took place the best part of 2,000 years ago, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if there is something inside you that says, you know, on reflection, I think this could be true. Maybe I've never heard it put quite like this before. But if this really did happen then what should I do? Well, Peter's words ring true today. It's simple. You change your mind. You change your thinking. You repent. You decide. You acknowledge. You declare, look, I've been wrong about Jesus. I've been wrong about who Jesus is. And I want to say publicly that I believe he was the Son of God, sent earth to be the Savior of the world. And today I want to accept him as my personal Savior. That's why Peter said, each and every one of you must do this. This is actually an individual decision. It's not a group decision or even a family decision. Each and every one of you individually must make up your own mind who you think Jesus is and make the decision whether or not to be public with that. So what better way for me to draw to a close than to give you the opportunity right now to respond for yourself to do the very thing that these 3,000 people did in response to Peter's message which was in response to him peering into an empty tomb so I want to close this out by giving you yourself individually personally an opportunity to respond I think for many of us we just need to respond in worship And the good news is, in a few moments, Steve, the musicians, they're going to come back up. They're going to lead us in worship. This is your opportunity to go public with your praise to the risen Jesus. Don't hold back. Don't just be passive and wait for someone else to do something. No, no, no. This is your opportunity to respond in worship. Jesus is alive. Let's worship him. Brothers, I think we need to be a whole lot more intentional about connecting what we believe with our day-to-day lives. The resurrection pushes us beyond simply agreeing or believing. If we believe Jesus is alive, then he must be a living reality in our lives. It changes absolutely everything. Listen, if you would say, honestly, in your heart of hearts, 
that Jesus isn't much of a living Lord to you. I mean, every so often, maybe you get moved or challenged here on a Sunday morning. Every so often, you feel close to him when you remember to pray. Every so often, you can sense there's probably more to it. But when it comes right down to it, in reality, you don't spend the time. Maybe you still have some conscience problems. Perhaps you struggle to feel or believe, know his love for you. Today, I want to encourage you to decide to be consistent. If I believe Jesus did rise again from the dead, then I'm not going to settle for living a single day as though he was dead. I want you to seriously consider what the implication of that would be for you. It changes everything. What does it change in your life? And then finally, I think there'll be some here today who need to make a a slightly more specific response. If you want to become a Christian, or maybe you're already a Christian, but you've never been baptized in water, you've never gone public saying, yeah, I'm with Jesus. Or maybe you've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're trying desperately to live out being a Christian without the power that he promises to you. You can decide today to do something about that.